Because Leviticus begins with the continuation of a conversation that was occurring between God, the Lord, Jehovah, and Moses through roughly 20 chapters of the book of Exodus, our initial study, our first study last Sunday, intended to establish both the backdrop as well as the context for this important book. This morning, before working our way through the entirety of chapter 1, I want to take just a few minutes and kind of set up a more formal introduction to the book. Leviticus is the third book in what is known as the Torah, or the Pentateuch. Well, the word Torah has a broad meaning, simply referring to instructions or teaching. The word Pentateuch derives from two different Greek words, meaning five scrolls. Also known as the five books of Moses, these would include Genesis, Exodus, our book Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. In the Jewish Talmud, this book, centered in the middle of the Pentateuch, was called the Law of the Priests. The title, used in our English translations, your Bible, of Leviticus, first emerged when the ancient Hebrew was translated into Greek in what was known as the Septuagint. Naturally, the word Leviticus means that which pertains to the Levites, Leviticus. Well, there are a lot of aspects to the book that do have specific implications for the Levites, the tribe of Levi, the priestly tribe, because the subject matter of Leviticus is really more applicable to a much much larger audience. Personally, I prefer the ancient Hebrew title for the book, And He Called, The Lord Spoke. Regarding Moses' authorship of the Pentateuch, more specifically the book of Leviticus, the evidence for this is overwhelming. Aside from the fact that Moses is mentioned numerous times in Leviticus itself as just one of many examples, and providing instructions for how a cleansed leper was to present himself at the temple before the priests. Jesus says to the man he had just healed of leprosy in Mark 1 verse 44, he tells him, go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing those things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them. And of course, these instructions that Moses commanded are articulated in Leviticus 14. So Jesus is attributing authorship to Moses. Aside from this one instance, over and over and over again, Throughout the gospel records, Jesus will specifically mention Moses in connection to Leviticus. If you need more affirmation that Moses penned Leviticus than Jesus' testimony, well, I would also encourage you to add the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, John, by extension the Holy Spirit, to the list. As I mentioned last Sunday, God had just supernaturally delivered. He had freed the Jewish people, from their bondage in Egypt. He'd used Moses as the tip of the spear. These ten plagues. Let my people go. And finally, Pharaoh relented. Changed his mind. They were backed up against the Red Sea, and God supernaturally parted it, providing a way of escape for the people. I mean, the deliverance of the Hebrews was an amazing feat, an amazing thing, all in and of itself. You can read about it in Exodus. But now that he's freed them, and he's bringing them to this land of promise, the land that he had promised their forefathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, God brings them to Sinai, and he wants to teach them, before bringing them to the land, the right way to live, and the best way to interact with one another. This family of slaves was now a nation. 
God is wanting to be instrumental in forming their identity. And yet the Lord knew that the only way he could teach them how to live and how to interact with each other was to first come and dwell in their midst. And thus he gave the instructions for Moses to build the tabernacle, placing this tabernacle, this tent in the middle of the camp, and the glory of God would dwell there in the midst of the people. It's why the book opens for us, speaking of this tabernacle of meeting. God no longer speaking from on high, no longer speaking from Sinai. He's now speaking from in their midst. Always know a healthy relationship with God is paramount if we're to live lives of holiness and in harmony with each other. Which explains why Leviticus can be broken down <clears throat> into two simple sections, in case you weren't with us last Sunday. Chapters 1 through 17 discuss how man should approach a holy God. Chapters 18 through 27 unpack how man should then live in light of God's presence. It's also worth pointing out the subject matter presented in Leviticus is so central to the message of the gospel that the book itself is quoted an astounding 100 times in the New Testament. Pastor W.A. Criswell once wrote, Without an understanding of the principles of atonement and holiness found in Leviticus, much of the New Testament has no foundation on which to rest. To say that Leviticus is one of the, quote, most New Testament books of the Old Testament would hardly be an exaggeration. For it foreshadows the person and the work of Christ in a most remarkable and elucidating manner. Within these 27 chapters that encompass Leviticus, you will find the word atonement referenced 51 times in 45 verses. You will also find the word holy, holiness, presented 90 times in 76 verses, more than any other book in all of the Old Testament. For all of these reasons, one of my favorite Bible expositors, a man by the name of J. Vernon McGee, he once called Leviticus the most important book in the Bible. In fact, McGee goes so far as to suppose that if it were possible to get the message of this book into the hearts of all people who are trying to be religious, all cults and isms would end. To that I say a hearty amen. I'll repeat this often in our study, but the key to unlocking, understanding, wrapping your brain around Leviticus is not to view the book as a list of things you need to do, but to see it as God setting up the framework for the work that Jesus would do on your behalf. Leviticus is not about what you do, but about what Jesus would come to do, as well as an explanation for how that work the work of Christ, should then naturally influence the way we live and the way we interact with one another, the way we order our lives. Leviticus is God establishing the precedent for grace as well as all of the ways in which this amazing grace changes everything. If we're being honest this morning, and I hope we are, it's church, but it's highly unlikely I'm going to go out on a limb and say that most of you have probably never read through the entirety of the book of Leviticus. The truth is that Leviticus is kind of the book where most Bible reading plans die a quick and sudden death. 
the subject matter itself. Let's be real. It can be arduous. But the reality is Leviticus is difficult to read because of the way it's fundamentally structured. Like one of the first things you'll notice, (laughs) and in some ways fine to be grading as you read through Leviticus, is the constant, incessant repetition of directives. Like, like for example, we'll see it this morning. Within the very first chapter, all of the specific processes for the offering of a bull as the burnt offering is then repeated word for word pertaining to then the offering of a lamb and then later the sacrifice of a bird. Like, why do this? Why not say, offer a bull, here's the instructions, repeat for sheep, repeat for birds. Let's move on. Repetition, repetition, repetition. It's all over the place. And it can make reading it difficult. So why the repetition? There's a strategic purpose for this. There's no question, initially, that Moses is simply writing down the things that the Lord spoke to him. In fact, much of Leviticus is Moses transcribing word for word what the Lord had to say. But keep in mind, aside from that, We're thousands of years before the printing press. Yes, there was an ancient process by which copies of the original documents were made, but this process, it was tedious, it was expensive, and ultimately few, if any, had access to read Leviticus, to read the scroll for themselves. According to Rabbi Bernard J. Bamberger, and confirmed by New Testament, uh, Old Testament scholar F.W. Uh, F. Dwayne Lindsay, excuse me. The first book, this book of Leviticus, was the first book studied by Jewish children. So when you went to Sunday school, this was the first. This was the initial book all the children in Israel would study in order to both know, understand, and most importantly, internalize the concepts that end up being articulated in the book. Hebrew children were required to memorize all of Leviticus. You have a hard time reading through Leviticus. Imagine as a little kid going to church and every we're just working on memorizing the entire book of Leviticus. It was that important to Hebrew society, to Hebrew culture. Now, I don't read or speak Hebrew, but those who do make an interesting observation about the ancient language here. One theory, in fact, as to the reason for the unique repetition is that God was intentionally adding cadence and rhythm to the text so that when Leviticus was read out loud in the ancient Hebrew, it sounded like a song. Not only is the repetition of phrases and directives helpful in a process of memorizing, but if you can take those words and put them into a cadence of song, it's easier to remember having children. It's amazing what they can memorize if you put it to music, put it to song, put it to a cadence, put it to rhythm. And so knowing that the Hebrew children would memorize this book, the repetition of phrases We're designed to aid in that process. It's grading for us in English reading it, but that's the explanation. Aside from this, the other structural reason that Leviticus proves to be a difficult read is the enormous, copious amount of details that God provides about literally 
everything, it can be difficult. Like, for example, not only were the people instructed to bring an animal to the tabernacle as a sacrifice, but every single aspect of that specific animal in in regards to how it was to be offered is addressed by God in painstaking detail. Like we'll see again this morning in chapter 1. God was specific. These are the animals. Matter of fact, these are the animals to whatever class of society you happen to fall into. God then details as to where each of the offerings should be made at which part of the tabernacle itself, which side. God was particular with what was to be done about every part of the animal, every part of the animal's body, what parts were to be offered, how those parts were to be offered, which parts were to be discarded. God goes so far as to determine what spices can be used in the process and which spices should never be included. God even lays out what aspects of the offering and all the parts and all the pieces are the responsibility of the offerer and what role the priests play uh, in the process itself. Lots of details. Now, ultimately, I see three explanations as to why God goes into so much detail in Leviticus. First, there is no question the attention to detail intended to yield a psychological effect. Let me give you an, an, an illustration. When a young person joins the military, they immediately go to boot camp. And the purpose of boot camp is twofold. Break that person of who they are in order to build them into someone different. That's the goal. To accomplish that task, the military very specifically takes a person and they places them into an environment of complete and utter structure with particular order. There are detailed guidelines about every aspect of your life. When you get up, when you go to sleep, when you eat, what you eat, what you do during your day, how you make your bed. Oh, you think you know how to make a bed? We're going to teach you how to make a bed. Very specific. What you wear, how you style your hair, how you iron your shirt. Details, 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 details. Now the purpose for the structure, the order, is to strip a person of their former identity to impart a new one. You see, when details about even the minute aspects of a person's life, when those details get heightened, the idea then is reinforced that every aspect about a person's life matters. If we're going to go on the record on how to iron a shirt or how to make a bed, then how I behave also matters greatly to the sergeant. Now don't forget the context. God delivered the Jews from their bondage. He removed them from Egypt to make them his own special people. God's plan was to give them a new identity. The purpose of which was for their lives to then contrast the lost world around them. The law, with all of these details, aimed at ordering and structuring their new society, intending to produce this desired result. Because they were God's chosen people, God gives all these details about everything so that they know Everything mattered, especially to God. Now, in way of application, this is important for us. As a Christian, I hope you know that God has freed you from the bondage of sin. He's freed you from something you couldn't free yourself from. You needed a Savior, a Deliverer. And in addition to calling you out of the world and saving you, 
You've been redeemed and chosen and made part of the family of God. You are now God, part of God's chosen people. Presently, there's this process underway where he's imparting a new identity. He's trying to make you into someone else. He's changing you and transforming you, healing you. As we work our way through the book of Leviticus, the attention to detail reinforces a very important idea. And that is the fact that God not only cares about how his people live their lives, but he's gone on the record concerning these things. Secondly, the attention to detail, especially concerning the sacrificial system, intended to create a clear distinction with paganism. I mentioned last Sunday, but the idea of approaching the divine through a sacrifice, it didn't originate in the book of Leviticus. In fact, the precedent was established by God back in the Garden of Eden, reinforced by the acceptance of Abel's blood offering in Genesis 4, verified again by Noah's offering of clean animals following the flood, before becoming an essential component of Abraham's covenantial relationship with God. The burnt offering did not originate in Leviticus. It had origins back to the beginning. And yet, while the concept of a sacrificial system indeed possesses biblical origin, the polytheistic religions of the day had adopted and employed their own twisted version of this. Similar to what the Hebrews had witnessed during their years in Egypt and what they would soon encounter with the pagan communities living in Canaan. Because the gods controlled every aspect of daily life, pagan sacrifices were often reactionary and they were made from a place of deep anxiety. Again, the Hebrew people are not the only ones during this time period making such Kind of like such offerings, such sacrifices. The pagan cultures did the same. Sacrifices to the gods were made with one of two purposes. They were made to either maintain favor with the god you were dependent on for rain or to appease judgment. Like when it came to the latter, the more severe the judgment, well, the more extreme the sacrifice. In the end, this twisted view of a system that God instituted would lead many of the pagan cultures to go so far as to, in extreme situations, offer human sacrifices. Or even their children, if that didn't work. Sometimes, in the most extreme dynamics, to appease the gods, they would offer their firstborn sons, the most valuable thing in an ancient culture. I hope you know any system based on human beings seeking to earn God's favor, will always demand of those human beings enormous sacrifices. While these practices were normal, and it's true that a righteous God has to be approached through an offering, the details and the directives established in Leviticus intend to do something specific. They intend to differentiate this system of sacrifice with and from the pagan twisted view of sacrifice. These pagan ideas. Not only will Leviticus present sacrifices not as an attempt to maintain good standing with God, but 
Leviticus will present sacrifices as a natural response of one's good standing. Beyond that, ultimately, the Levitical system of sacrifice reinforces an important idea. And that is the fact that sinful man can never offer an adequate sacrifice to appease the judgment of God. You're in a heap load of trouble. Not even a firstborn son from a sinful man will be accepted. See, the Levitical system establishes the idea that God's judgment can only be appeased when He offers His firstborn son as the sinless sacrifice to atone for man's sin. Which leads to the final reason for the abundance of detail. Every aspect of the sacrificial system had a typological purpose. Painting a picture. Pointing us forward to God's sacrifice of His only begotten Son, Jesus, and the work that 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 accomplished on the cross. In one of His post-resurrection appearances, recorded for us in Luke 24, we read Jesus saying something interesting to the disciples. I'll read it for you. He says, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Jesus saying, these things were written about me. I've been teaching you that. Then most incredibly, Luke tells us that Jesus then proceeds to open their understanding. He teaches a Bible study, takes them back to the beginning so that they might comprehend the scriptures. How Jesus ties in to all of the aspects of these things. With that in mind, you shouldn't be surprised then that Leviticus plays such an important role in the New Testament. All of the details provided in Leviticus, even the minute ones, intend to play a role in painting a picture of the sacrifice that Jesus would make on our behalf. In much the same way, I don't, do, you, do you like puzzles? Puzzling? The key to a puzzle is having the box cover in front of you. And what does the box cover do to the, the pieces of the puzzle? It provides them context, right? Oh, this picturesque hillside. The blue is the sky. I, I know what this piece is about. Like the box cover, the big picture, gives context to all the pieces. They give meaning. And it's with that in mind that the cross of Christ, the cross of Calvary, it's the box cover that make all of these details in Leviticus make sense. Again, I'll say it. The sacrificial system is only a means to an end. What we find in Leviticus only intended to establish the framework by which God would offer for us, for you and for me, an effective sacrifice. To this point in Ephesians 5 verse 2, Paul boldly declares, writing, Christ has loved us. Jesus loves us, and he's given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God. And then Paul borrows language from Leviticus for a sweet-smelling aroma. In this first half of Leviticus, chapters 1-17, through God explains to his people the specific manner in which he should be approached by man. Once more, there should be no surprise, this section begins with seven chapters, if you're a note-taker, detailing for us a system 
of sacrifice. Within these seven chapters, we're going to discover five different sacrifices, five different offerings. You'll have the burnt offering, which we'll cover this morning, the grain offering, the peace offering, the trespass offering, and lastly, the sin offering. Let me begin by reading the entire section pertaining to the burnt offering before spending the rest of our time unpacking and discussing its significance. Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1. Now the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tabernacle of meeting, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the livestock, of the herd, and of the flock. If his offering is a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. Then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. He, and this is the offerer, shall kill the bull before the Lord. And the priests, Aaron's sons, shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood all around the altar. Now, that's a bad translation, the word sprinkle. It's literally splash. It's not like a couple drops. It's coat and covering. Splash the blood all around the altar that is by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And he, this is again the offerer, shall skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar. We'll see this in Leviticus 9, but when they were dedicating the tabernacle, the fire of God came down and consumed the first offering. Thus, there was a perpetual fire. They didn't light anything. There was a perpetual fire from God. This is signifying His holiness and His purity, His righteousness. So they take the fire. They put it on the altar. They lay the wood, this again being Aaron, the priests. Lay the wood in order on the fire. Then the priests, Aaron's sons, shall lay the parts, the head and the fat, in order on the wood that is, upon, that is on the fire upon the altar. <clears throat> but he, again this is the offerer, shall wash its entrails, its innards, and its legs with water. And the priests shall burn all on the altar, as a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. Verse 10. If his offering is of the flocks, of the sheep, or of the goats, as a burnt sacrifice, he shall bring a male without blemish. He, the offerer, shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And we find here a different location, really for logistical purposes. And the priest, Aaron's sons, shall again splatter its blood all around on the altar. And he, the offerer, shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat. And the priest shall lay them in order on the wood that is on the fire upon the altar. But he, the offerer, shall wash the innards, the legs with water. The priest shall bring it, burn it on the altar. It is a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire a sweet aroma to the Lord. Verse 14. And if the burnt offering, the burnt sacrifice of his offering of the Lord is of birds, 
then he, the offerer, shall bring his offering of turtle doves or young pigeons. The priest shall bring it to the altar, wring off its head, and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out at the side of the altar. He, the offerer, shall remove its crop, it's the stomach, with its feathers and cast it besides the altar on the east side into the place for ashes. Then the offerer shall split it at its wings, but shall not divide it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar, on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. The burnt offerings. Now before we dive into the particulars, I think it would be helpful if we just take a minute and establish the larger purpose behind the burnt offering. According to verse 4, the entire motivation for coming to the tabernacle of meeting to make this particular sacrifice was for the burnt offering to be accepted by God on behalf of the individual in order to, quote, make atonement for him. In fact, the ultimate acceptance of the offering by God for atonement of sin is thrice illustrated by the repeated phrase, it is a burnt offering, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. In the Hebrew, this phrase, sweet aroma, it can be translated literally as a savor of rest. When God smelled the smoke of the burnt offering, in the Hebrew language, what's being described is that he literally, he sighed, he exhaled, he eased, he rested. The smell brought to the Lord a measure of pleasure. Why? Well, because of what the smell represented. The aroma of the offering filled God with an anticipation for the work that Jesus would accomplish. In much the same way that when you walk into a barbecue joint and you get that aroma, that sweet-smelling aroma, you get excited. Why? Because that smell lets you know some good eating's about to take place. It's a smell that sets you for a future work, an excitement, an anticipation. Slow-cooked brisket, that smell, gets excited to eat barbecue. Unlike some of the other sacrifices, where a portion of the sacrifice would be left over for the priests, a burnt offering was unique. Because the entirety of the animal was consumed on the altar. The only exception was the stomach and the feathers of a bird, which, because they were unclean, were discarded. What the offering here intended to accomplish for man, it demanded all of the sacrifice be given to God. Every part of it was offered, every part given. In the Hebrew, this word presented in verse 4, atonement. It's the word kafar. It literally means covering. That's what the word means. Again, the entire concept doesn't originate here in Leviticus, but finds its origin all the way back in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3. Immediately following the sinful decision of Adam and Eve to eat the forbidden fruit to rebel against God, we read something interesting happened. That very moment, we're told that the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And so, in response to that, 
They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves covering. Sin yielded this immediate compulsion within humanity to cover themselves. There was a shame, an insecurity. Now, in the end, fig coverings, fig leaf coverings, bad idea. Not very effective. In fact, every attempt of man since to cover his own sin through his own works always proves to be ineffective. But Genesis 3 closes informing us that seeing man in this situation, God, we're told for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin. And what does he do? He clothed them. God provided the initial coverings. Now, what's important to understand about this process of covering sin, especially presented in Leviticus, is how incomplete it was by design. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, which is a great commentary on Leviticus, we're told very specifically that it was not possible ever that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. Again, the whole purpose of the burnt offering was not to necessarily make atonement, but to point forward to an ultimate sacrifice that God would offer on man's behalf that would do more than just cover sin. But according to 1 John 1 verse 9, cleanse man of all unrighteousness. Like, understand the burnt offering was designed to articulate three things necessary for your atonement. If you're a note taker, you can jot them down. Number one, God would have to sacrifice something costly. Number two, Jesus would have to endure something ghastly. And number three, you'd have to humbly accept that work by faith. This is the whole point of the burnt offerings. First, God would have to sacrifice something costly. There's no question the entire process here of, of the burnt offering was to de be deeply personal. Like, like look back at a few things. In verse 2, God specifies the animal itself couldn't be random. As a matter of fact, it had to come from the livestock of the herd of the flock. Like, understand what God is asking to be offered. These are not wild animals. They were domesticated, vulnerable. You didn't have to go out and hunt for your offering. Instead, all you had to do was go pick one. From the herd, totally different. They were easily available, accessible. Additionally, in verse 2, God seems to specify that the animal had to come directly from your flock. There's a, an internal personal idea behind it and had to be male. Because of the male's ability to stud, they were more valuable in the ancient cultures than the females. So the idea of choosing from your herd, your flock, a male was that when you were coming to make an offering, you, was, you were going to have to make an offering that cost you something. Cost you something important. In verse 3, the offering, we're told, was to be a male without blemish. Which meant that the animal was often chosen at a young age. And it was kept from the fields. Again, it couldn't have blemish. It couldn't be damaged. So you would keep it from the fields. You would raise it in a protected environment, 
close to the family. It was then only natural that that close proximity fostered a relational connection between you and your family and that animal you knew you were going to have to go sacrifice. In a lot of sense, they became pets. You gave them names. By design, this offering of an innocent, vulnerable, costly animal you knew, cared for, and had a personal relationship with in order to make atonement before God, it required a lot of the individual that was making the sacrifice. And why was that necessary? Why did it need to cost you something? I think it's for a different reason than you might initially think. You see, the the, the law, legalism, would have us process that and say, well, because when I make an offering, it's supposed to matter. It's supposed to count. It's supposed to cost me something. And your offerings don't matter at all. See, the whole point here is that God wants us to have a taste of the experience He would have when He offered His only begotten Son for us. Secondly, for atonement to occur, Jesus would have to endure something ghastly. There is no doubt the entire process of making the sacrifice was hands-on. And it was hands-on in order to illustrate, especially for the offerer, the extreme consequences of sin. While God mandated that the priests be the one to collect the blood, splash it around the altar, lay the wood in a particular order, bring in the fire, place the pieces of the animal onto the altar in an order, it was the job of you, the offerer, the individual making the offering, it was your job, according to the text that we read, to kill the animal. Like It wasn't as though you could bring your pet animal to the place of meeting and it was the priest that would kill it. I just can't, I can't look. My little, little lamb, Geppetto. No, you were the one. You had to come and you had to kill the thing. You had to take a blade, run it around the neck, and bleed it out. It was your job. And not only that, you're like, oh, that was tough. Then you had, according to Leviticus 1, after killing your animal, you had to skin the carcass. Then you had to cut the body into specific parts for the sacrifice, your field dressing. Then you had to remove and wash the entrails, the guts, as well as remove and wash the legs. That was your job. The obvious reason that this process varied was only if it was turtle doves or young pigeons. It's very difficult to cut that up in a particular way. Now, as you can imagine, when the process was over, when you were done making this burnt offering, you stood outside the tabernacle watching smoke ascend to heaven as your sacrifice is being completely consumed and you are emotionally drained. You just killed your pet. And you were physically spent. You're exhausted. Imagine doing this with a bull. In fact, beyond the emotions and the physical natures of it, you are a bloody mess. 
I mean, from head to toe, you're covered in blood. You see, the process here, it was designed to be grotesque. It illustrated sin, atonement, what it demanded. Not only did it emphasize the severity of sin, but in the end it presented an object lesson for the experiences of Jesus on the cross. As you reread chapter 1, you can begin to put little details onto what Jesus must have went through. The Apostle John, he records John the baptizer declaring Jesus at the beginning of his ministry. He says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then in 1 Peter 1 verse 19, Jesus is described as a lamb without spot and blemish. But years after the cross and a vision of heaven, John says the following of Jesus in Revelation 5 verse 6, I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slaughtered. Beyond the fact that the process highlighted the bloody effects of your sin, the purpose here was to give you a glimpse, I believe, into the experience that the father would have when he offered his only son. You know, our atonement has been afforded, why? Again, not because you offered Jesus. No, you didn't offer Jesus. You couldn't have offered Jesus. It would have been unjust. Instead, God willingly offered the only spotless lamb from his flock. God slaughtered his son. And the blood was on God's hands. And he did it for you and I. Finally, the burnt offering was designed to articulate how our humble acceptance of this sacrifice by faith was also essential for genuine atonement. Notice how the process began. According to verse 4, before you slaughtered the animal, God required what of the individual? Well, we're told very specifically, you had to place your hands on the head of the burnt offering before you killed it. And admittedly, kind of the translation here from Hebrew into English, it's kind of incomplete. The idea that's being illustrated through that act was that the person wasn't just putting your hands, but instead your complete weight. You were resting on the animal. Resting fully on a sacrifice. By placing your hand onto the head, specifically, you were symbolically transferring the full weight of your sin, the full weight of that sin's guilt, onto the innocent sacrifice who would then be slaughtered and die on your behalf. In this act of what we call transference, God was requiring anyone that was coming to approach Him through a burnt offering, except in that act, three important truths. One, you had to acknowledge you were a sinner separated from God. Like if you were going to engage in this, that's the first concession. I'm a sinner, I need to do this. Number two, you were also conceding and affirming that the atonement for your sin would require death. Thirdly, you had to place your faith in the fact that God would accept a substitute for you. See, putting your hands, those were the three things you're conceding. I'm a sinner. I'm separated. Two, I'm going to die. 
That's what my sin requires. And third, God said I could transfer this onto this animal. That seems crazy to me. But I'm going to believe it because there's no other way. Like, and putting your hands, that's what you're articulating. To this point, God is crystal clear. Look again at verse 4. It's the central verse. He says, anyone coming, willing to come before him through faith in the offering, what does God say? Here's the process. This is what you're going to do. It will be. It's a promise. It will be accepted to make atonement for him. Let, let me add one more wrinkle to this. We no more make an offering for atonement than we can justly transfer our sin unto a sinless Jesus. You see, God the Father not only offered His Son, but it was God who transferred our sin onto Jesus as well. Isaiah 53, verse 6, we read, And the Lord laid on Him the iniquity of us all. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, For God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. I hope you see how the burnt offering is actually all about a sacrifice that God would make for you. And not a sacrifice you would make. Because there isn't one when it comes to atonement. God the Father was the one that made the offering. Jesus the Son was the sacrifice. Atonement, it ultimately manifests if you place your faith in that work. That God made an offering you couldn't, and Jesus was a sacrifice that you couldn't. In closing, we're running out of time. I want to point out that the book of Leviticus... So we've just looked at chapter 1. Contrary to opinion, it doesn't begin with law, does it? It doesn't begin with a bunch of rules or regulations, judgments, condemnation. In fact, the book of Leviticus simply opens with an invitation to come to God through a sacrifice to make atonement. A sacrifice God would ultimately make for us. And in verse 2, that invitation, I don't know if you noticed it, it's broad and it is very inclusive. God says, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, anyone, highlight it, underline it, circle it, anyone. What's being described here by God is that atonement is available for all. Not just for the Jews, but for anyone. And to reinforce the idea, God intentionally provided for us here three different sacrifices. The bull and the sheep and the goats and the birds. Why? Because you might not have been able to afford a bull or afford a sheep. Everyone could find a bird. But God gives us three tiers of sacrifice so that no one could be excluded from atonement for like economic or social limitations. All could come. All are invited. In Leviticus 1 verse 3, we read that the burnt offering shall be offered, notice, of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. While God is clear that everyone had a choice whether or not they wanted to come to the tabernacle and make a, a, an offering of a burnt sacrifice, it was left to your free will. 
You weren't forced. You weren't coerced. You were just invited. Would you come? But beyond that, that whole idea of the free will component, when you factor it into the larger realities at play, I think its application is even more amazing. I hope you know, God didn't have to provide Jesus as a sacrifice to atone for your sin. He didn't have to do that. He could have left us all damned. But instead, God, he did what? He made an offering of his free will. God chose to make a sacrifice. (laughs) And what would motivate God to make such a sacrifice as costly as his only son? Well, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him, believes in the transference of the sin and guilt, should not perish but have everlasting life. One of the aspects of the burnt offering that I am so thankful for. You know the priests? They only examined the sacrifice being offered. You know, to determine if it was acceptable or not. You know what they don't examine? the person coming to make the sacrifice, to make the offering. The offering is examined, but not the person coming. It was only the sacrifice, my friend, that had to be without blemish, not the offerer. Like like what grace there is in the reality that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, God is not only inviting you to come and to meet with Him, but he's already provided an effective sacrifice to atone for your sin in order to make such a meeting possible, irrespective of who you are. It's a free will offering. We don't come to offer, but we do come to accept the offer of Jesus. So, Father, Lord, we thank you for your word.